0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello,
1: everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Craig Servillo, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Ricky Law about his excellent new book, Transnational Nazism, Ideology and Culture in Germany and Japanese Relations, 1919 to 1936, published by Cambridge University Press. Ricky, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, Ricky, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, before we begin the interview about your book, um, I always like to ask the authors uh, to tell us a little bit about themselves, their background.
0: So
2: uh, I am a historian of modern Germany and modern Japan, specifically in the uh, interwar period. Uh, and uh, I am teaching at Carnegie Mellon University right now.
1: Bring And um, you, um, where are you from?
2: Uh, I'm from California, and that's where I uh, went to uh, university originally. Uh, I went in studying uh, electrical engineering of all things uh, during the uh, original internet uh, era, eventually became the original internet bubble. and uh, But very soon after uh, entering university at uh, University of California, Berkeley, I realized that I was far more interested in history uh, than in uh, engineering, so I switched out and uh, pursued uh, history wholeheartedly. Uh, I eventually added a second major, I added German as a double major, and so I was very intensely studying uh, German history, and that's how I started out. Uh, I eventually ended up graduating with uh, two majors, uh, history and German. I wrote my uh, graduate thesis, uh, uh, graduation thesis in uh, German history. Then uh, after graduation, I went to Japan to teach English for a year. And that was quite by accident. I, I did not speak any Japanese at the time and knew virtually nothing about the country. Uh, but that was the uh, jet program and um it was uh accepting me so i went i went to uh, hokkaido the northernmost uh main island to teach english for a year and just fell in love with the country uh but since i didn't know any uh of the language i wasn't getting as much out of it as i could have so i decided to go to graduate school and uh, improve my knowledge of Japanese culture and also keep my uh, knowledge of uh, German culture alive. So I decided to uh, pick a topic in, that involved Germany and Japan. And uh, there are relatively few that kind of jumped out. And the one that I en- ended up picking, that is German-Japanese relations uh, before World War II, really stood out. And so that's the one I had. And um, so with that in mind, knowing exactly what I wanted to do, at least the broad theme, then I started looking up uh, potential graduate schools that had uh, faculty members that work on both countries in roughly that same period. And as it turned out, that actually is, uh, there are not that many of them, at least back in the early 2000s, I couldn't find that many of them. And the one that I eventually ended up going is uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, I had two advisors. One was uh, Dr. Christopher Browning. He's the German expert on my committee, German history expert on my committee. And then uh, the other co-advisor is uh, Dr. Miles Fletcher. And he's the Japanese history uh, expert on my committee. So I uh, ended up writing a dissertation officially under global history. That's the uh, sub program I was in, in the uh, history department on uh, Germany and Japan in the interwar
1: period. Yeah, the, the linguistic accomplishment um, that, that, that went into this book is uh, was one of the most striking things about it. Um, the fact that you could learn these two languages that are very different, um, and, then, and then sort of learn them well enough to write something so comprehensive is, is truly a remarkable accomplishment. Um, so with that being said let's uh let's talk about the book itself how did you um you sort of gave us a little bit of how you came to this this topic but um why why did you settle on this particular topic for the book rather than something more say diplomatic history or um because I mean, this is truly a cultural history this book
2: yeah uh i when I went in i started out wanting to look at the diplomatic history actually I think you are you're catching uh right on that why it wasn't that way it it was going to be that way actually uh when I did my undergraduate degree at Berkeley I was very much focusing on um, diplomatic history I originally uh my graduation thesis at Berkeley was about uh Italy and Germany, so I was always interested in the foreign relations aspect of it. Uh, I think originally I even wanted to try to do military history, but then was sort of told that there really isn't a career uh, for that, Uh, so then I switched to diplomatic history. So when I started doing the, uh, the project on Germany and Japan in the interwar period, I was very much expecting to write a dissertation on the diplomatic aspect of it. But then very quickly, when I started getting into the literature, I realized that there was actually not that much diplomacy going on between Germany and Japan until at least 1933, but probably 1936, officially, when they signed the anti comintern pact. Uh, And I realized that, Uh, there was actually a gap in our knowledge. And what I mean is that our knowledge of German-Japanese relations, modern German-Japanese relations, that is from the mid-19th century when Japan started uh, interacting intensively with the outside world, our knowledge of that between Germany and Japan is actually fairly good overall. And so we have quite a bit of literature on... The 19th century up until World War One, and maybe even during World War One. So we know how those two countries interacted. And usually, the narrative is that Germany was the uh, uh, the teacher, the exporter of knowledge, the exporter of expertise to Japan. And then Japan was the student, uh, absorber of German knowledge. So you hear a lot about how the uh, the Japanese Meiji Constitution is based on the German. Uh, constitution. We hear about the uh, Japanese army is built on the uh, Prussian uh, model. And then the next era where we start to know a lot about German-Japanese history was the uh, 1930s. A lot of works uh, actually start with 1933. Uh, And they say, uh, oh, let's talk about German-Japanese relations from 1933 to 1945. Of course, those are the Nazi years covering the Anti-Communtern Pact in 36, and then the Axis Alliance thereafter. And then, of course, during the wartime and how much or really how little happened between them as military allies. So I was reading all these works and I realized, wait a minute, what happened to that decade or so? after World War I and before 1933, what was going on in that year, in those years. So I started thinking about how to fill that hole, how to to describe what was going on. And another question that came out is that if we are trying to explain why Germany and Japan became allies in the mid-1930s, there were basically two ways to think about it. And both of these ways were related to the uh, historical literature that we had up to that point. One one way to look at it is to take a long-term view. That is, Germany and Japan were taking these long-term paths toward convergence from the mid-19th century because Germany was teaching Japan all these things, and so it's only natural that they became allies in the 1930s. The other was to take the extreme short-term view. That is, uh, they weren't allies until uh, the mid-1930s when the Nazis started taking steps. So that's why they started the narrative from 1933 to 1936. And my argument, uh, the eventual argument that I started making in the book is that, well, let's take a medium-term view because neither of those views... The short term, the very short term and the very long term are entirely convincing, I would say. Uh, if we take the long term view, then it should have been Imperial Germany and Imperial Japan that should have formed an alliance. After all, they were the most similar, not Nazi Germany and militarist Japan. And yet Imperial Germany and Imperial German- Japan actually were fighting on different sides in World War One. And the short-term view, I think, ignores some of the things that were going on in the 1920s uh, that eventually uh, made the alliance more acceptable culturally and ideologically. So I started looking into uh, the 1920s and the early 1930s, and I realized that there was not a lot of diplomacy going on. Weimar Germany was uh, reduced to basically a regional power within Europe had a lot more going on to uh, worry about uh, than pursuing bilateral relations with uh, Japan. And Japan, as a World War I victor and uh, upholder of the Versailles uh, world order, uh, was also not interested uh, in pursuing uh, a strong exclusive relationship with Germany in the 1920s. And that's why I think a lot of diplomatic historians ignore the 1920s. There just weren't that many documents uh, in the government archives about how Germany and Japan dealt with each other. Instead, the relationship between the two countries was maintained and strengthened by civil society actors. Uh, These are journalists, these are lecturers, these are filmmakers, book writers, language teachers, and uh, voluntary association members. So... Once I got to the archives uh, and the lack of archival material kind of set me straight in my visions of doing uh, a grand diplomatic history, then I just moved out of the archives, went to libraries, went to newspaper uh, archives and ended up writing a uh, cultural history because that's how those two countries interacted mostly in the public realm, uh, mostly by uh, civil society actors.
1: Yeah, and I I definitely want to get into the specifics of what you found. Um, But before we get there, um, I want to talk about what you mean by uh, transnational Nazism. I I would would like you to explain this as a concept uh, to our listeners who are probably not familiar with uh, what you're talking about.
2: So transnational Nazism is an ideological outlook, Uh, It has two elements or two strands, if you will, two strains even. Uh, One is on the German side, and that is, uh, it is an outlook that allowed German Nazis to interpret their ideology, National Socialism, in such a way that non-German foreigners can be made acceptable uh, within the Nazi worldview. In this case, the one that I look at is the uh, Japanese. So one half of National Socialism is the story of how Nazis in the 1920s and 30s interpreted their ideology to make room for the Japanese because they obviously had a, uh, a racist uh, and a hierarchical way of looking at the world. So look that way. Uh, there shouldn't have been any place for the Japanese to form an alliance with the Germany. But what I argue in the book is that because of transnational Nazism, some Nazis, including some uh, uh, people in leading positions in uh, in Nazi Germany, were able to see the Japanese uh, under an acceptable light. They basically accommodated uh, Japan and its people within their ideology. Uh, so they emphasize things like Japanese uh, racial purity over uh, the Japanese racial inferiority in from the Nazi uh, uh, worldview. They emphasize uh, Japan's uh, status as a modern world power. Uh, and uh, the phrase I like to use is that Japan might not have been a counterpart to Germany, but it definitely was a counterparty. That can sign treaties and agreements with Germany. The other half of transnational Nazism is the non-German half, and in this case the Japanese half, and that is how, uh, how a non-German people uh, made sense of Nazism and found elements of Nazism and Hitler the person uh, attractive and appealing. So once Nazism leaves the border, or in other, in other words, cross borders transnational, uh, the ideology and also the image of Hitler uh, really become uncontrollable by, by Germany. So Germany has very, limit, had lim- very limited control over how Nazism and Hitler were received by the Japanese people. So this other half of transnational Nazism is about how Japanese opinion makers and commentators, uh, interpreted Nazism in ways that made sense to the Japanese and also appealing to the Japanese. So it, it's a story, one half of the book is the story of how, uh, Japanese commentators, public, uh, intellectuals made the transition from either being uh, unfamiliar or apathetic toward uh, uh, Nazism to act- actually very strong supporters and vocal advocates. So in some ways, this is an, a story of how some uh, Japanese became uh, supporters of Nazism, but not just any Nazism, but the transnational version of it.
1: Um, you mentioned in in your introduction um, the debate over whether Japan was a fascist country, became a fascist country, could have become a fascist country. Um, can you orient uh, uh, our listeners um, with that debate? And, and where do you come down on it? Where do you fall on it? And how does it play into your work?
2: Yeah, for a long time, I had tried not to get into that debate, actually. Uh, so the, the, the contention, the main question is, was Japan during the 1930s and the wartime years a fascist country? Can we we apply the label fascist to Japan during that time? Uh, That's, of course, something that we commonly do to, obviously, fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. So Japan being the third main power in that Axis alliance, there's definitely a... um, an urge to want to apply the fascist label there, and in fact, it's a very—I uh, uh, think—it's still an, an not an entirely resolved uh, debate within historian within the uh, his, uh, community of uh, historians writing about Japan. Uh, I'll say that typically, uh, historians trained in Japan, or at least influenced by uh, uh, a Japanese historiography tend to argue that Japan indeed was a fascist country. That is that you can apply the generic uh, fascist minimum, if you will, and uh, the tests and say, oh, Japan passed the test and indeed was a fascist country. Uh, But uh, Western experts of fascism, so people that uh, with an expertise writing about Italy and Germany, usually, uh, not not absolutely, usually uh, would argue that Japan didn't quite qualify as a fascist country. It checked off elements, of course, but not exactly something that we would put in the same category of uh, Italy and uh, Nazi Germany. So where I, so I, I was kind of unwilling to to get into that, knowing that it was such a uh, unresolved uh, issue. And but once I I settled on the idea of uh, transnational Nazism, I realized that no, actually, uh, my my work really has to uh, engage with the existing scholarship on that. And so my take on it is that I still believe that uh, Japan was not a fascist country, but there were fascists in Japan. That is, there were Japanese fascists. But these people were not powerful, or there were not enough of them to make the entire country fascist. And using that logic, I also argue that there were Japanese transnational Nazis. That is, there were Japanese supporters of German Nazism and supporters of Hitler. But of course, Japan was not a Nazi country. However militarist and uh, aggressive it was, it was not Nazi. So this is where I come down. I say that there were uh, a good number of Japanese uh, individuals in the government and also in the uh, uh, civil society that were fascists, maybe even Nazis, uh, but they were not enough to make the uh, whole country in ways that we would say, oh yeah, that makes the whole country fascist or certainly Nazi.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that, no, thank you for uh, for explaining that to us. I think it's a, a debate that a lot of people probably are not familiar with the nuances um, and, and your, your work certainly has something to say about it. Um, before we get into the sort of the concepts that you describe in each of your chapters, um, explain to us the or talk to us a little bit about your source base. Um, you have a wide base of sources um, from two countries. Um, and you, you, you mentioned that you went to newspapers and other archives. Uh, but, but talk to us about the process of gathering sources for this book, because it's, they're very, very diverse. You couldn't just go sit in one archive and get everything you need and go and write. Um, it was, it was more challenging than that
2: yeah it uh i it i it took me two and a half years uh during my graduate school years to go to uh, different archives and libraries in uh, Germany and then Japan and then even after that after I defended the dissertation I actually went back to some archives in uh, uh Germany and Japan to uh go back and access the sources so the uh the The plan was to look at uh, how one country perceives the other in its uh, uh, media, in its open uh, uh, source material. So I just thought about how the media landscape looked like in the interwar period and thought, well, what were the major, uh, most popular and important sources of information for uh, the German and the Japanese peoples, because one, uh, fundamental argument I made is that Germany and Japan, uh, were just too far away from each other for most German and Japanese people to really get to know the other country firsthand. So in other words, uh, the very few people who did get to know the other country firsthand, who could overcome that, uh, almost 10,000 kilometers of land and water, uh, they were in a very privileged position. They had this expert knowledge, firsthand experience and knowledge with this country very far away, that automatically put them on a, uh, a more privileged position to in some, not quite dictate, but certainly influence how the rest of the population thought about the other countries. So you think about, correspondents who were posted abroad, missionaries who went to the other country, filmmakers who made movies from the other country, and then they could return to their home country and really become these experts because they had that uh, experience with them. So I started looking at uh, these few, uh, maybe dozens of of individuals really who had the uh, privilege to do that. Well, maybe more than a few dozens, but certainly not masses of people we're talking about. Uh, And I decided that, all right, I'm going to organize the project into two halves, one on the Japanese media on Germany and the other uh, vice versa, uh, German media on Japan. And I also organized the two halves into chapters. Uh, that potentially uh, will show how different layers of the mass media portray the other country. And what do I mean by layers? I basically thought about well, what's the first thing uh, a a a normal ordinary German or Japanese would go if that person is interested in learning about Japan and Germany. So I thought, well, newspapers were probably the most common and accessible source. So I put that as the first chapter in the half. How, German, how Japanese newspapers portray Germany and how German newspapers portray Japan. Then I kind of moved up in terms of how exclusive uh, these uh, 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 sources of media would get. So I moved from newspapers to lectures in Japan to uh, move to non-fiction, and then finally to language textbooks in uh, uh, Japan, how all these Japanese sources portray Germany. Sometimes similarly, sometimes it's the same people writing about the uh, uh, Germany, but sometimes it's very differently because obviously a language textbook would deal with Germany in a much more specific and sophisticated way than, say, uh, a short newspaper article. And for Germany, I did something similar. I started out with German newspapers, uh, moved on to uh, motion pictures, newsreels, documentaries, and movies. Then I moved to nonfiction, and finally to uh, voluntary associations. Again, there's a kind of a a thinning of how many people get involved in these sources. So newspapers being the broadest in terms of reach and then voluntary associations being the smallest. Uh, and I do think that they show, uh, how different layers of the society engage with the other country. Those that who, those that could afford the time and the money to join voluntary associations were very different from those who could only learn about Japan in newspapers. Now, obviously there's quite a bit of overlap and, uh, people didn't necessarily start out, uh, uh, in order with, oh, I'll start reading a newspaper and then move on to a lecture and then move on to a book and then move on to a language textbook. It doesn't work that way, but the idea is that it. it I think it does show how uh, different classes of people uh, perceive the other country.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a great explanation because I think if someone were just looking at your table of contents, they would be curious as to why you decided to organize your chapters um, in this way, um, was there not much uh, study of the Japanese language in Germany? Is that why you didn't uh, look at language te- textbooks for that chapter?
2: Yeah, they, uh, there was just not that uh, many people in Germany studying Japanese, uh, and as a result, uh, there was there were not that many textbooks who uh, that deal with Germany. And they deal with uh, the Japanese language. Japanese language was considered very difficult by uh, a lot of Germans at the time. And also, it would strike the Germans as very bizarre to want to study this language. Now, some people definitely study it, but for for very specific purposes. Uh, If they're planning to be missionaries, if they're planning to be traders over there, uh, or that's pretty much it. it. It's not a language that a lot of Germans would study. And and, the, the, and for what purpose? Uh, whereas the German language was extremely popular, not the most popular, English was the most popular foreign language in Japan at the time and still today. Uh, but German was probably a close, uh, well definitely a second in the uh, uh, amount Western uh, European languages. And I was not planning to uh, studied the language textbooks, actually. But once I arrived in Japan and I went to the library, expecting to just look up all these things about diplomatic contact and cultural interperceptions, uh, but I realized that uh, at least a quarter, probably close to a third of the books uh, published about Germany uh, in interwar Japan had to do with the language at first I completely ignored it being a bad historian. Uh, Then one day, literally one day, I saw the light and I thought, wait a minute, this is the sources speaking to me. The sources are telling me that the German language meant a lot to the Japanese people and that I I should read and look at these books that the Japanese people were reading about Germany. So then I dived in and uh, found really interesting revelations. I think if I had to choose, and it'll be a hard choice, but if I have to choose the most interesting uh, chapter out of the book, it will be that chapter on uh, uh, how Japanese language textbooks
0: portray Germany. Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off,
1: and and we will we will get back to that. We will talk about that chapter specifically um, because I too was very fascinated by that chapter. Um, but let's let's begin with chapters sort of one and five. Um, talk about newspapers. I was I, I was totally blown away by the first chapter of this book about how um, the Japanese newspapers portrayed Germans and how certain figures in Germany, Hitler. Hindenburg and so on were Wilhelm were celebrities uh, in Japan. It's just something I didn't, I never even really thought about, <laughs> um, let alone know about. Uh, so explain to us how Japanese newspapers characterize Germans because it, it really was sort of stunning to me.
2: Yeah, it it blew me away, too, when I first got into it. Uh, In fact, uh, I started out my uh, graduate studies. My master's thesis was on uh, uh, newspapers, German and Japanese newspapers, and how they portrayed each other. And the Japanese newspapers were the first ones I looked at. So I examined uh, five to six uh, Japanese newspapers in the interwar period to look at how they portrayed Germany. And what really stood out was how intimate a picture that these newspapers painted of German news. And by intimate, I mean that they uh, got down to very personal details. So uh, one thing that really stood out was how popular and newsworthy uh, the ex-Kaiser Wilhelm II was during uh, the interwar period. This is a completely irrelevant person as far as Germany was concerned, after uh, the end of World War I. And yet, he kept making news, uh, headlines, uh, until certainly uh, uh, Hitler uh, uh, came along. And then even then, uh, the uh, Wilhelm still ha- had his uh, a place in Japanese um, newspapers. So that's not unique uh, about how uh, German personalities in uh, Japanese news media. Uh, Hindenburg, was also uh, very uh, closely examined, uh, Hitler, and even sort of ordinary Germans. So these are otherwise people that we would never read about. And yet they were very closely observed and written about in uh, the Japanese uh, newspapers. And so what I argue is that this actually shows a fairly knowledgeable, sophisticated, uh, deep, not a, a way of understanding the German. But on the other hand, it also created some uh, uh, problems in that uh, when they have such a familiar picture of these people, they also became very sympathetic to them. So Japanese newspapers across the political spectrum were quite sympathetic to Wilhelm and therefore the Kaiserreich. Uh, they were quite sympathetic to uh, Hindenburg and also Hitler. So they were focusing on these personalities, mostly on the political right uh, in Germany. And as a result of that, the newspapers, wittingly or unknowingly, became quite sympathetic to the German right. And so by focusing so much on Wilhelm, they really didn't give the Weimar Republic a chance. They expected Wilhelm and the Kaiserreich to come back at any moment. So anytime we, there was a uh, political unrest in Germany, such as uh, uh, the Kap Putsch, such as the Hall Putsch uh, by Hitler, such as uh, Hindenburg's election in t- 1926, such as Hitler's appointment in 1933, at any one of these events, newspapers immediately jumped to the conclusion that, aha, Wilhelm must be coming back. Well, each time they misread the picture, and I argue that partly that's because they so narrowly focus on Wilhelm, the person, that they misinterpret uh, these events as a right wing, uh, not only right wing, but a restorationist uh, uh, moment so that the monarchy would come
1: back. Well, you even make the point that they thought at one point that Hitler wanted to bring the monarchy back.
2: Oh, absolutely.
1: Um, oh, um What sense do you have as to why they were so fascinated by these Germans?
2: Uh, These are very colorful individuals. Uh, Wilhelm, of course, aroused Japanese attention a long time ago by declaring the Japanese the yellow peril. Uh, Hindenburg, of course, was the person running the German military and maybe even the uh, German economy during World War One, and so he was definitely seen as a very heroic figure that almost uh, uh, could have uh, won the war for Germany. Uh, and but but overall, Japanese newspapers, many of them, not all, but many of them did have a more sensationalist style of covering uh, news. So they focused very much so on the personal details of a lot of figures. I even kind of use an analogy that um, these individuals, Wilhelm, Hindenburg, Hitler, and so on, were merely characters to act out news on a stage for Japanese newspaper readers. So they would so people could kind of follow a plot line of German history in Japanese newspapers by following the lives and the 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 uh, uh, trivial news about these individuals. Uh, in some ways it's it's kind of like an ongoing drama uh, staged in Germany acted out by these individuals. So that, the uh, I mean, in some ways, it, it, it shows how much the average Japanese news readers needed to know about Germany. So, so this is actually uh, evidence that how, how much more the Japanese reader knew about Germany than the other way around. Uh, but on the other hand, it, it does create some problems when you know so much about them. It's quite then easy to become very sympathetic uh toward them, and then therefore support whatever these people uh, stood for
1: um you do mention in the chapter um left wing newspapers how how was their coverage different if at all uh,
2: they tend to be less um interested in the there were there were not as many uh left wing newspapers per se there was a liberal paper that I looked at the asahi uh, and then there was the Communist uh, newspaper, the uh, underground uh, Communist uh, Party organ. The Communist Party organ, in some ways, is a very unique thing uh, in that uh, the readership was small and it was very ideological. It was very uh, partisan, very uh, orthodox even. It got its uh, ideology really sort of a, a mainstream Soviet way looking at uh the Germans, looking at the Nazis, calling them sort of uh, fascists and uh, capitalists and so on. Uh, the liberal paper was more restrained in terms of its uh, uh, pro-right-wing uh, style in, uh, uh, in German politics, but it was not above uh, sensationalizing uh, news in Germany. As a matter of fact, I think that liberal paper uh, made the most dramatic turn toward transnational Nazism. So it started when, when the Nazis first came along in 1933, that liberal paper, actually uh, quite uh, in pretty clear terms, denounced the Nazi anti-Semitism, denounced the Nazi censorship of the press, and denounce uh, Hitler's uh, authoritarian tactics. And yet in a couple years time, certainly by 1935, that paper printed very uh, fawning, positive articles uh, about Nazi Germany. Uh, its uh, correspondent uh, had scored an interview with Hitler and was just uh, starstruck in his language uh, when he printed the interview and uh, so that transition, in some ways, was even more extreme and more telling than the uh, right-leaning newspapers in Japan.
1: Um, and you sort of hinted at the difference between the, the German coverage of the Japanese. Um, it was sort of less sensationalized. Um, paint that picture for us. How, how was the coverage of Japan so different in Germany?
2: The... Newspapers I looked at, and and this is what I understand how the German press landscape looked like, Um, a lot of it was uh, partisan news. So a lot of the newspapers were either explicitly affiliated with the party, that is, they are the official party organ, or they had a very clear ideological leaning. So I picked uh, seven papers, uh, some official party organs, such as the Communist uh, Party organ, the Social Democratic Party organ, the Nazi Party organ, and a few others, uh, uh, spanning the political spectrum from the far left all the way to the far right uh, with the Nazi uh, official paper. And uh, these newspapers uh, were sensationalist in their own way in that they were sensationally partisan. With the exception of the centrist newspapers, probably the centrist liberal newspapers, the ones on the ideological extremes, uh, definitely were willing to uh, interpret news in ways that uh, were beneficial to their ideological worldview. Uh, but they had a very serious purpose in mind. Uh, so the communist newspaper would interpret news based on their own ideology, but the very for the very ser- serious purpose of Sort of teaching its readers to uh, look at the world in its own real, uh, worldview, and the social democrats would do the same thing. The Nazis would do the same thing. Um, so the language was the language in these papers tended to be more um, heavy-handed in a way, in that it uh, was was very political. Uh, it's also very predictable, actually, uh, if some kind of news breaks out, uh, one can probably guess how the Nazis would interpret it, how the socialists would interpret it, how the communists would interpret it. Uh, the coverage was a lot less personal. Uh, it's far less common to see individual names uh, in a German newspaper about the Japanese, certainly not the way that... Japanese newspapers would describe German individuals in some detail. Instead, in German newspapers, uh, Japanese individuals, the Japanese would often be just described as the Japanese. Uh, It's quite rare to uh, run into uh, individual names. In fact, one of the ironies is that it was actually the Nazi official organ after the Nazis had seized power, so that it was uh, kind of became the national paper it was actually that nazi paper that had the resource and the interest in japan to profile individual japanese uh newsmakers so it was it was actually after 1933 that we started seeing uh a more intimate portrayals of uh, uh, uh japanese individuals uh in uh, german newspapers
1: uh was this to sort of lay a groundwork for a potential alliance, um, or potential—maybe not necessarily an alliance, but a warm feelings—is there? Do you have any sense as to why um, the Nazis would be interested in doing that in their newspaper?
2: Yeah, I don't. I don't think they had alliance in mind when they started doing it in. Um... Even the early 1930s, not even just 1933, it's just that we saw a lot more of that uh, after the uh, Nazis came to power. I suspect that one reason was uh, because the newspaper was a lot more uh, endowed with resources. Uh, Posting correspondence in Japan was not cheap. But with the backing of the Nazi party and the Nazi regime from 1933, the newspapers suddenly had a lot more money to just send people abroad and have much more uh, extensive coverage of Japan. Another reason is that uh, a lot of these uh, Nazis were actually transnational Nazis. That is, they uh, had positive—they had a positive view of uh, the Japanese and Japan, uh, and so they were interested in finding out what was going on. Uh, uh, in Japan, they were trying to a lot of some of these newsmen that I talked about in the, uh, in chapter five, they were sort of half journalists, half, uh, not quite secret agents, but certainly, uh, self-appointed diplomats, let's put it this way. They were not officially working for the foreign ministry, but they were certainly amateur, uh, go-betweens, wannabes that uh, want to establish closer relationship between Japan and Germany. And so they would uh, officially act as a correspondent for the Nazi paper, but they, in fact, were there to seek out uh, right-wing Japanese individuals. And they would profile and feature these uh, right-wing individuals uh, back uh, in... uh, uh, Articles sent back to the uh, Nazi newspaper. They were looking for their ideological uh, comrades, if you will, and so they were a lot, a uh, 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 de- lot more detailed in uh, describing these uh, potential friends that they ran into.
1: Yeah, the the reason I asked the question, I was just curious if there was some sort of parallel between the way that the the Nazi press dealt with Japan, you know, sort of, and the way they dealt with fascist Italy. Um, you know, the German press always. You know, pumped up fascist Italy to sort of make an alliance more possible. That's, that's sort of why I asked the question. Um, and, and did you look at any Italian newspapers for this or sort of think uh, about how they, they, the press dealt with the two, out, two countries similarly, differently?
2: Uh, no, I did not get to do that. But I, if, occasionally, I ran into how uh, Japanese newspapers portrayed uh, Mussolini and fascist Italy. And uh, from what I could see, and this is a very incomplete picture because I didn't, I didn't do a um, thorough uh, research like the way I did with uh, Japanese newspapers in Germany, uh, it seemed that Mussolini didn't seem to make as much news as, as Hitler did. But like I said, the caveat is that to the extent that I ran into Mussolini in the Japanese press, it was coincidental. Like I was looking at news about Germany, and then there was occasionally. So, but but the 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 hunch I get so far, if I do sort of make a guess, is that um, uh, Mussolini didn't make nearly as much news as as Hitler and Germany did.
1: Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. It uh, <laughs> it, just, it was a question that passed through my mind as we were talking, and. Uh... Yeah, That's I just want Yeah, I just wanted to get your take on it. Uh there was no expectation that you'd have a, a full answer. <laughs> um so um let, let's turn now to the language textbooks. Um it was a fascinating chapter. Uh so explain to us what your initial sense of these textbooks were once you decided to use them and uh how did you use them um how many did you use um and and what did they they tell you that you that you couldn't have gotten from other sources?
2: I I had no idea what I was getting into. Uh and so maybe we'll backtrack a little bit by describing the order in which I did the research between the two these two countries. So I started doing research in Germany first. And when I first when I still was thinking about, oh, maybe I'll find a lot of material in the uh, archives of the foreign office, the uh, federal government archives. And so I actually went to a lot more governmental archives in Germany than I did Japan. But once I realized after about six to nine months or so in Germany that I realized that there, were, there really weren't, weren't that much uh, official archival document material in Germany about Germany and Japan. Certainly not in the 1920s. There was, there's more in 1930s, but those have been quite thoroughly examined. I was not going to find anything that nobody has talked about before. So then when I went to Japan, I kind of recalibrated the research. I, I was thinking, oh, I'll need to go to the Japanese equivalent of the federal archives and I thought, like no, 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 that, that that's probably not going to yield a lot of results. So I plunged, uh, dived into the uh, open source material, that is published material in the uh, National Diet Library. And um, there were, from my finding, there was about 1,300 books or so uh, that talk about uh, Germany in Japan in the uh, period from 1919 to 1937. And uh a lot of these were actually translated words straight up translations from German to Japanese. A lot of these were legislations, regulations, all kinds of things, anything from uh, regulations governing uh, horse racing to uh, rules about uh, transporting dead bodies on railroad. Uh, but these are you know really clues to tell you how, uh broadly and deeply, the Japanese were importing knowledge from Germany, seemingly very trivial things like you know horse racing regulations uh like I said, and out of these thirteen hundred books or so, about a quarter to even a third of these books had something to do with the German language, so there are a lot of books talking about. German grammar, German for chemistry, German for dentistry, German for uh, medicine, German for uh, aviation, uh, German uh, conversation made easy—all kinds of these books. And like I said, at first I just ignored them. I thought, "Well, I'm not—I'm not a linguist. Uh, I'm not—you know—I'm not—I'm not going to look at them." But like I said, one of these days, then I just had this uh, uh, revelation, this epiphany, and I thought. This is, this is the sources talking to you. You need to look at that. So then I started checking them out one by one. And uh, it, it's it it reveals something that I really didn't expect. Now, a lot of the sources, a lot of these material is actually quite boring. Uh, because they're just teaching German grammar. They usually start with the alphabet. Then they talk about uh, noun genders, they talk about uh, cases, cases in German, they talk about the uh, declension, and a lot of it is just very dry. Uh, So I actually ended up using hundreds of these books. I just checked them out and flipped through them page by page by page to see what was interesting. And what I realized uh, after sort of distilling the information from this uh, pile of books is that the linguists who wrote these textbooks actually inserted quite a bit of ideology uh, in the books and also injected a lot of their visions of what Germany should be to the students uh, that they were teaching. So one of the really one of the things that really really jumped out, looking at all these books, is that uh, a very very common sample sentence in uh, uh, these grammatical uh, in, uh, 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 textbooks was the sentence "Long live the Kaiser," "Lang lebe der Kaiser," and it's it's a shock to me that these books, all printed in the nineteen twenties and thirties. Would have that phrase "Long live the Kaiser" uh, as a teaching sentence. So students reading this book are supposed to, you know, chant like like say that sentence to learn to use the imperative. Actually, uh, uh, to to learn it, there is a grammatical lesson there. But they couldn't have. I guess they couldn't have thought of another sentence other than "Long live the Kaiser" <laughs> uh, to teach that. Now it didn't it didn't occur in every book, but it was very very frequent uh and there were other forms of that sentence too uh you know such as uh, uh may the kaiser live long uh may god protect our merciful kaiser something like that some kind of a sentence praising the kaiser and that really stood out to me at the first time i ran into them i thought well it's just a couple books doing that but then it it, it i ran into them often enough that it was far more likely than just being a random thing and so i started looking uh at similar uh ideological sentences in there and actually found uh, many of them Uh, as a matter of fact when the nazis started gaining attention in germany in the uh, early 1930s uh, many of these linguists started then inserting uh, pro-nazi sentences uh into their works so we started seeing passages uh from uh, Hitler's writing, we started seeing sample sentences uh, invoking Hitler as an example. Uh, we started seeing uh, Nazi song lyrics uh, as a reading uh, uh, passage in these textbooks. And uh, it's a very clear case of uh, transnational Nazism in Japan, actually, how, without.
1: Oh, I just wanted Without? to ask a follow-up, sure. sorry. Um, so you mentioned Hitler's writings. They actually took parts from Mein Kampf and put them in the textbook? Yeah.
2: Hitler, uh, uh, or, or usually they were Hitler's speeches, not necessarily from Mein Kampf. Or there were excerpts, but usually these were speeches. So Goebbels' speeches, uh, the song I meant to refer to was the uh, the Horstwessel song, um, the Nazi sort of party song, that would uh, was printed in some Japanese uh, textbooks or, of German, and uh, yeah, these these were there, yes, and these would you know uh, either be side by side with uh, classics, so, you know, a, a passage by Goethe or Schiller, uh, or sometimes they actually displaced them. So we actually saw it's possible to see less of these uh, genuine classics and see more of the the new politicized writing.
1: Wow. Um, okay. Um, we, so we, we're coming up on 53 minutes, but I do want to give you uh, a chance also to talk about uh, the nonfiction chapters. Um, so uh, if you could just quickly compare and contrast uh, how each country uh, shows up in the nonfiction, sort of give a, the listeners a little bit sense of how the sort of the higher culture, we talked about newspapers, sort of the higher brow culture dealt with the two.
2: Yeah, I think uh, we can even combine the discussion of nonfiction with uh, Japanese pamphlets and German films as well, in that these were sort of two layers of the media, one being a lot more um, scholarly, that is the nonfiction. And then one is being more popular, that is the uh, lectures and the films. what really jumps out uh, when you compare them side by side and that's part of the reason I, I structure the book this way is that I do want readers to be able to compare how these two countries portrayed each other. Uh, and what really jumps out is that uh, on every layer of these uh, of the media, whether you're talking about newspapers, lectures, nonfiction language books, the Japanese coverage of Germany, was far deeper, more sophisticated, and uh, more knowledgeable than the German equivalent. Now, let me say that the best German books about Japan uh, were as good as the Japanese books about Germany, but there were very few of them, uh, comparatively speaking. There were far more Japanese works on uh, Germany than vice versa. And these were written by very knowledgeable experts uh, of the other country. So we see uh works delving into uh German literature and how German literature um represented uh the so-called German national character and how that's a very respectable trait that the Japanese emulate. Uh we uh hear about um uh uh, Japanese uh, travelers writing about Germany, uh, mass tourism was beginning to be uh, a thing uh, in the uh, mid-1920s with the uh, uh, reopening of the Trans-Siberian Railway. So people were actually taking trains uh, to uh, visit Germany. Uh, one of the first time they did so was actually to the uh, Amsterdam Olympics. Uh, in 1928 to cheer for the uh, Japanese team. And they had to pass through Germany to uh, in order to go to the Netherlands. And so they stopped there for weeks. So we have this very interesting book. Uh, basically, it's a collected travel logs of uh, a couple dozen people uh, about their impressions of Germany. And we don't have anything like that on the German side. The uh, Germans writing about Japan, uh, usually the Germans who went to Japan went there for a specific purpose yeah there were a couple there were some tourists but these were not your typical tourists these are travel writers rather than tourists they were there to write about Japan not to sightsee and writing as a as a side uh, afterthought so the people who went to Japan went there with a purpose we're talking about missionaries we're talking about scholars uh, like I said travel writers and ultimately uh, political pundits. And their writing reflected uh, their particular profession. So the the missionaries tended to write about uh, religion. Scholars wrote about economy and the humanities. Uh, The uh, travel writers focused on writing about hotels and trains. And so the knowledge landscape tended to, the German uh, knowledge landscape about Japan tended to be more uh, fractured. Focus on a few things and far less comprehensive as the one uh, that Germany had for uh, 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 Germany. And another thing that stood out, if we have if 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 we have the chance to talk about the lectures, uh, the Japanese lectures about Germany, and this is the really interesting part, I think, is that that like that chapter on the lectures. It uh, was not just about lectures. It was about pamphlets and lectures. The pamphlets were meant for popular consumption. Uh, they were very cheap. Uh, they were sold in bookstor- uh bookstores, in you know, street vendors, even certainly in railway station. And then the lectures were given to very exclusive audiences at private clubs, luncheons, those kind of places. And it's very fascinating, and I totally did not expect to see this when I first ran into them. Is how differently, different, how differently uh, they uh, these two different audiences receive Nazism. The popular pamphlets or even populist pamphlets really liked uh, uh, Nazism because of its populist rhetoric. So when it talked about the uh, fair sharing of uh, burdens, uh, fair sharing of responsibilities, and also fair sharing of benefits from the country, that got emphasized a lot. But in the uh, lectures that appeal to the uh, upper class, those uh, elites that could go to the lectures, that could afford the luncheons, they didn't talk about that at all. Instead, they talked about anti-communism. And I think that shows the malleability of Nazism, once it's abroad, that different audiences can pick up different elements of it and and, and make of it what they like. So the uh, lower middle class, the lower classes would say, oh, Nazism is appealing because of its populist element. While the upper classes could say, well, we don't really like that populist part, but it's anti-communism and that we can definitely get behind.
1: Did you... um before you started writing or started researching, did you think about this uh, sort of class element that you've touched on you know a number of times throughout the interview? did you did you sort of see that coming that the that the the mediums for the lower classes would be geared one way and they would react one way and the mediums for the more upper classes would be geared another way and think about it another way? Or was Oh, this, not at all? Yeah, no
2: uh, that that kind of emerged when I started writing, actually. Uh, it, it just did not occur to me when I was uh, collecting the sources. Uh, it only jumped out when I when I compared the lectures and the pamphlets side by side. Actually, then I started looking at the uh, rhetoric used in the different uh, types of media, and, and it really jumped out. To me. The only reason I grouped them together was that both pamphlets and uh, lectures were published in similar medium, so they would both be published in these very short uh booklets or brochures you know maybe about 30 to 40 pages something that you can definitely read uh in a couple days commuting to work uh they're usually quite affordable the printed version not the lectures the lectures were hard to get to you have to be members of a club uh but there was a mission to sort of share knowledge with even those who couldn't make it to the club so these lectures would be printed and be sold also in bookstores at about the same price as the pamphlet. So I thought, oh, that's a good reason to put these two kinds of sources side by side. And, and once I did that, uh, the contrast between the different uh, social classes' reception of Nazism really jumped out, that uh, they just picked whatever they liked uh, about Nazism, and started, uh, advocating that to, uh, their own audiences.
1: Yeah. When I, when I was reading through the book, I I was struck by, you know, this is one of the real strengths of the book that, you know, they, you you make pretty clear, you, you show pretty clearly that they do, they, they sort of cherry pick, um, the things that they like, um, and how it sort of can work for everyone, how this, your concept can apply to everybody in society. Um, they just were picking different things. Um, so, As a way to conclude talking about your book, um, I wonder if you can give us and uh, the listeners um, one or two things you would like people to take away from either listening to you today or reading your
0: book.
2: Uh, There are two things. One is the uh, longevity and the uh, persistence of Nazi ideology. Uh, I think a lot of people, uh, certainly after 1945, thought, well, uh, we'll put an end to Nazism. Uh, Hitler and his uh, Nazi Germany was uh, were defeated. And that's uh, you know, the end of that particular chapter in history. Uh, I think uh, the story of the history of transnationalism tells us otherwise. Now, remember I said that there were two strains of transnational Nazism. One, the Nazi side, and the other, the non-German side. The Nazi side is gone. There are no more uh, official uh, Nazis to decide who to uh, uh, accept and whom to accommodate within official Nazi ideology. So we don't have that, okay? But the other strain of transnational Nazism, that is how other people, non-Nazis, non-official Nazis, could make of that ideology, could transform that ideology for their own purpose, Uh, that, unfortunately, is alive and well. Uh, Elements of Nazism uh, are still getting uh, promoted and propagated in some darker reaches of the Internet, so uh, certainly racism, anti-Semitism, Authoritarian government, uh, former national greatness, aggression—that kind of things—and uh, and these are actually used by right-wing groups in a lot of places. Uh, I use the concluding pages of the, my the, my book to talk about how, in uh, places like India, in Japan, uh, Southeast Asia, Mongolia, even, uh, and even places like Russia and Ukraine, where. Uh, Nazi imagery and Nazi messages are being repurposed uh, for their own current purpose. So Nazism has gone transnational. Uh, and not, only tra- not, tra- not not just transnational, maybe even transtemporal. It's still around, just in somewhat different forms uh, uh, and for different purposes. But that main ideological core is there. It's just got... In some ways it got denationalized, so it's no longer German Pacific uh, and uh German specific. And it also got deracialized some ways. So uh you don't hear about um uh right-wing groups in Asia talking much about race uh in a Nazi way, or if they did, they would use the racism to talk about the greatness of their own race about and then you know to denigrate other people. The second thing I would like readers to take away is to uh, think about the consumption of uh, media and its relationship to uh, how many to tr- to the truth, actually. So one thing I realized looking at the interwar period is that it actually shares a lot of response a lot of similarity with the post uh, cold War period. So again, I in my concluding pages, I kind of made a parallel, maybe not quite a straight-up comparison, but I, I, I put the post-World War I period with the post-Cold War period side by side. After a, uh, a worldwide conflict, whether it's the Cold War or World War I, uh, we have this uh, period of liberal uh, triumphalism. Uh, we think that the world is going to be a more internationalist place uh, there were new technologies that uh, uh, really made communications a lot easier. Of course, in our age, is the internet. Uh, people are a lot freer to associate, not physically necessarily, but certainly on the internet, virtually, you have a lot more virtual uh, internet groups and meetings. Well, in the 1920s, it was a little bit like that too. We have uh, communication became a lot easier. We have long distance radio, long distance telephone, even transportation, we have uh, trains that could connect Germany and Japan. We, could, we had the airship uh, uh, that could fly transcontinental. So uh, in both periods, we actually have a lot more sources of media, both in Germany and Japan. Um, and what I realized was that just because people could have access to more forms of media, that did not uh, mean that people got better knowledge. Instead, people got this more types of media from the same ideological origins. So people in Germany might have been reading three to four newspapers, but it might have been the main Nazi organ during weekdays. And then on, uh, if they live in particular certain cities, then there's a different Nazi tabloids that they could read. Uh, and then they could read the Nazi illustrated uh, magazine on weekends and then they could go watch uh Nazi newsreels and then read Nazi books and then went to a nazified uh voluntary association so you could look at someone like that and say you know was that person a really uh diverse interested uh consumer of media you can say yeah kind of but then the, 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 the content was basically the same. It's just the same source. It's basically an ideological bubble. And we saw that in both Germany and Japan. Just because there were more forms of media and people looked like they were more sophisticated consumers of media, uh, they ended up trapping themselves in their own ideological media bubble. They just were eating different types, but it's still the same food. Uh, it looked different but it's still the same content. And I think that's something we should be uh, uh, cautious about that just because we have more forms of the media in our age, we have internet, we have cable news, we have newspapers, magazines, podcasts, blogs. That doesn't mean actually people have become more sophisticated in terms of their uh, sources of um, information
1: um definitely well said and a a great way to conclude uh talking about your book um just one final question before i let you go now that this book is is finished um and you're now out talking about it rather than writing it um what have you turned uh to working toward towards now Uh, another book article taking a break uh
2: (laughs) well uh Actually, it's a, a book that's somewhat related. It's it's a tangent from uh, the, the first project. So uh, I think I've said everything that I needed to say about Germany and Japan at this point. Um, so I'm not going to add anything more to it. I might come back to it uh, eventually, but at this point, I have nothing more to add. Uh, the book, uh, I spent over about 15 years on the book. Uh, Pretty much managed to say with with one exception. uh, Maybe I'll 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 tell that later on at some other occasion. But uh, I pretty much said everything I wanted to say about German Japanese relations in the interwar period. But one thing I noticed is that whenever I give a talk about the project, uh, some people would ask, "Oh, so you looked at German learning in Japan? What about learning other languages, English, Chinese, etc.?" So I never could answer that question. And the next project, the next book project will be about that. How Japan in the interwar and wartime period uh, treated and learned different languages and what we can learn from uh, the ways that the Japanese um, received and uh, learned uh, these foreign languages, what we can learn from that uh, and find out what they thought about foreign relations. So why were the Japanese were learning English? Did they thought did they think highly about the British and the Americans, or were they thinking about becoming an intelligence officer, for example? Why were they learning Chinese? What did that mean? Uh, if they were learning in the 1920s versus the 1930s, so it will use uh, every language that I have ever studied, uh, and it will be a, it will be an international kind of project because it uses multiple languages, but it will be a, a looking at a um, international history through the lens of Japanese history. And it will also contextualize how uh, the Japanese were learning uh, German because it will sort of really put it in its place rather than looking at it uh, uh, in a bilateral way like I did with uh, transnational Nazism.
1: Well, no pressure when, when you're done and it's a book, um, we'd love to have you back on the show to talk about it.
2: Oh, I'm happy to.
1: Um, Well, I want to thank uh, Ricky again for agreeing to be on the show and talking to us about his book. Um, Again, the the title of the book is Transnational Nazism, Ideology and Culture in German-Japanese Relations, 1919 to 1936, published by Cambridge University. Uh, I highly recommend it. I think I hope you all will go out and get it. I want to thank Ricky again for being on the show, and I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you all next time. With Lucky slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.